You are listening to RudolfSteinerAudio.com. If you are listening to the podcast of this, it is located at RudolfSteiner.Podbean.com. Please consider becoming a patron. As well, there are two publishing houses, SteinerBooks.org in America and RudolfSteinerPress.com in England, who are the sole publishers of Steiner into English and have given me permission to do these recordings. Please consider patronizing them as well. This is a reading of a cycle of lectures by Rudolf Steiner entitled The Effects of Esoteric Development. This is Lecture 3, entitled The Senses and the Temperaments in Esoteric Training, given on March 22, 1913. Now that we have discussed the physical sheath of the human organization, we come to the etheric system or etheric body. Here, the changes that occur in human beings through occult or anthroposophical development involve the muscles, and especially as related to the senses or sense organs. When we practice such inner development, we feel more than a gradual increase in muscle flexibility, which also occurs in other physical organs, but we also feel more alive and sense how the muscles are still permeated by a dim inner consciousness. It's as though consciousness extended throughout the whole system of muscles. To speak of this experience, somewhat paradoxically, though not inaccurately, we could say that in the course of esoteric development, we gradually become more aware, we gradually become aware internally of individual muscles and the muscular system in a dreamlike way, that we carry the muscle system with us in such a way that amid waking consciousness we occasionally dream dimly through muscle activity. It is very interesting to consider this change in the physical sheath because perception of this phenomenon best confirms our progress. When we begin to sense our muscles individually, when, for example, we feel the mild sympathy or dim consciousness of what happens as we tense or relax them, then we can say something about what happens in the muscles. When we have a dreamlike awareness of our muscle movements, this proves that we are gradually coming to feel the etheric body as it impresses itself into the physical body. What we feel are in fact the forces of the etheric body active in the muscles. The first stage of perceiving the etheric body is a dim consciousness of our individual muscles. This is a dreamlike consciousness of the muscular system, similar to portrayals of the human being in anatomy texts, in which the skin is removed to expose the underlying muscles. Indeed, as we begin to perceive the etheric entity, we experience something like the skin being stripped off in a dreamlike awareness of the individual muscles, as though encountering a marionette or jointed doll, so to speak. Less comfortable, though unavoidable, is an increasing sensitivity as awareness of the skeletal system dawns. It is uncomfortable because as we become aware of the skeleton, we come face to face with our own gradual aging. It is not pleasant to face our own decline, and we are not normally aware of our skeleton in this sense. Nevertheless, when we develop etherically, we begin to feel the bony system as a shadowy form within us. We understand why the skeleton is a symbolic representation of death, 
and how it accords with humanity's ancient clairvoyant ability to recognize the approach of death within the skeleton. Much more important than all of this, however, is the experience of our sense organs as we develop esoterically. You know that when we practice esoteric development, we must eliminate awareness of the sense organs. The sense organs must be silenced, so to speak. In esoteric development, the sense organs thus feel condemned to inactivity. Because the sense organs are shut off, however, something else replaces them. We gradually become aware of the individual sense organs as separate worlds penetrating us. We begin to feel as if the eyes and ears, even the sense of warmth, have bored into us. Yet what we begin to feel are not the physical sense organs themselves, but the etheric forces, the forces of the etheric body that fashion the sense organs. When we turn off the activity of the senses, therefore, we see that the nature of these sense organs appears as the various etheric organizations organizations implanted in us. This is very interesting. Inasmuch as we eliminate the eyes, for example, during esoteric development and are no longer concerned with physical sight, we learn to recognize that light organisms penetrate our organism. Then we realize that the IYE has been fashioned gradually by the activity of the light's inner forces on our organism. As we suppress all activity of the physical eye, we sense that the visual field is permeated by the light's etheric forces which fashion the eye. It is indeed a strange phenomenon that we learn about the forces of light by eliminating vision. All theories of physics are nothing compared to knowledge of the inner nature of light and its effects. We experience this after gaining the discipline necessary to extinguish the eye's physical vision and gradually come to perceive the inner nature of light's etheric forces. Footnote from uh, Anthroposophy of Fragment, quote, For an interpretation of the sense of sight, the inversion of the experience of taste should be considered. Unlike the effect of an outer substance that we experience as taste, the situation here would have to be such that this being would radiate taste toward itself from within the human being. Just as the human being brings about a change in the substance in the case of taste, so this outer entity would have to undertake a change in the human interior. Such a change, however, is present in inner life processes, in the process of warming, for example. However, this warming would not proceed like an outer warmth process, because its substance is not outer warmth, but something identical in content to the sense experience of sight. We see that in this warming, occurring through the activity that radiates outward from within the human being, and founded in the color of the presumed entity, there lies the inner nature of light itself, not the experience of sight, but lying behind this experience of sight, the inner nature of light kindles a warming that lives in the organ-forming force of the sense of sight, just as the substance interacting with the sense of taste lives in the experience of taste. End of footnote.
The sense of warmth is at a lower level, so to speak. It is extremely difficult to place heat and cold sensitivity outside our awareness. The best way to accomplish this is to avoid being disturbed by any feeling of warmth during any meditation done as part of spiritual development. It is helpful to meditation if the surrounding temperature is not too hot or too cold so that we do not sense any discomfort. If we are successful in this, we can gradually come to recognize the inner nature of the warmth ether that radiates through space. Even though it is difficult to distinguish between this and our ordinary perception of temperature, we feel our body permeated by the activity of the warmth ether only when we can do so. When we no longer have a perception of warmth itself, we begin to recognize the nature of the warmth ether through direct personal experience. Of course, we set aside the sense of taste during our esoteric exercises, but if we can recall the sensation of taste, we have a means of recognizing the nature of an ether that is even finer than that of light, that is, the so-called chemical ether. This is not very easy to do. Nevertheless, it is possible, and we can experience it. Just as we can experience the life ether by shutting off the sense of smell, we can experience the chemical ether by recalling the sensation of taste. When we suppress the sense of hearing, an odd experience is produced. Here we must acquire a capacity for detachment to the point where we no longer hear audible sounds in our immediate environment. We must deliberately exclude everything audible. Then, as though boring its way into the organism, the etheric forces that fashioned our hearing organ show themselves. In this way we make an astonishing discovery. Indeed, such matters are related to higher and higher mysteries. Perhaps because of this I should say that not everything related to one's experience of a sense, such as hearing, can be discovered immediately. We find, for example, that the human ear has an organization that in no way could have been formed by the etheric forces at play around the earth. Even though the archetype of the eyes existed earlier, the light forces or the etheric forces of light are intimately related to the actual formation of our eyes. The eye's structure and placement in the organism is closely related to the earth's light ether forces. Likewise, the taste sense is connected with earth's chemical ether forces and developed to a large extent from them. Similarly, the sense of smell is related to the life ether and is formed almost entirely from earth's life ether. However, when our organ of hearing is experienced in an occult sense through esoteric development, we can see that it owes only an small part of its existence to the earth's etheric forces. We could say that the etheric forces active around the earth put the finishing touches on the organ of hearing. As it turned out, these forces made the ear less than perfect, because etheric forces could affect the ear only through their activity in the air and through a continuous resistance to it. We may say, therefore, that although it seems paradoxical in the case of hearing, 
an earlier and much finer organization became corrupted and now appears on earth as our present organ for hearing. At this stage of development, anthroposophists will come to realize through their own experience that they came with a complete organ of hearing, the ear, as they made their way from the ancient moon to earth. Anthroposophists will recognize that this hearing organ was much more perfected on the ancient moon than it is on earth. At times we must speak paradoxically, and in this sense we must say that the ear makes one feel a kind of melancholy, because it is one of those organs that in character and in their entire structure tell us of past perfections. Those who ponder over time the experiences briefly indicated here will come to understand occultists who derive knowledge from even deeper forces, and who say that during the ancient moon the earth was much more significant for human beings that let me read that again, and who say that during the ancient moon the ear was much more significant for human beings than it is today. The function of ear at that time was to live completely within the music of the spheres, so to speak, which still sounded during the ancient moon. The ear responded to the sounds of the music of the spheres that could still be heard on the moon, although more feebly than in earlier times. Thanks to its former perfection, the ear was always steeped in music on ancient moon. Music was still communicated on the ancient moon to the human organization as a whole. Waves of music still permeated the human organization and the inner life of human beings involved participation in the music around them and in adapting to their musical environment. The ear was the organ of communication. Its purpose was to reproduce inwardly the movements that resounded externally as music of the spheres. During ancient moon, human beings still experienced themselves as instruments played by cosmic forces. The ears in their perfection mediated between the cosmic, in quotes, artists and their instrument, the human organism. Thus our ears today awaken a memory and along with this memory the idea that human beings can no longer hear the music of the spheres because of a kind of de degeneration of this organ. Human beings are now emancipated from it and recall the music of the spheres only in music that can really be heard only within the element of air surrounding earth. We can also experience changes that occurred in other senses, but these cannot be discerned as clearly. There is not much point, therefore, in pursuing them, since it is difficult through ordinary human concepts to shed any light on these changes which are the fruit of esoteric development. What would be the use, for example, in relating what people can now experience on earth as the sense for speech? I do not mean the sense for the meaning of words. You already know that there is a special sense for speech. If you heard my Anthroposophy lectures in Berlin, footnote Rudolf Steiner titled The Wisdom of Man, of the Soul, and of the Spirit, given uh, in Berlin October 23rd through the 27th, 1909. And a footnote. Just as there is a sense for sound, so there is also a special sense that has only an inner organ and not an external one for understanding the spoken word itself. 
This sense has deteriorated even further so that today there only remains a final echo of what it once was during the ancient moon. What today has become the sense for speech, a means for communication, enabled human beings on ancient moon to feel their way consciously into the whole environment with imaginative consciousness in order to find their way around, as it were, the ancient moon. The movements one made and the path one had to follow were determined by the speech sense on the ancient moon. We gradually come to understand this sense for the spoken word as we develop a feeling for the inner value of vowels and consonants in mantric sentences. But what human beings on earth can achieve generally in this domain is only a faint echo compared with the speech sense in former times. You can see then how human beings gradually develop the perception of the etheric body, how what we in quotes overcome or set aside in occult development, that is the activity of the physical senses, is compensated for through fuller perception of the etheric body. Oddly enough, however, when we experience perceptions of the etheric body, we feel them as if they were not really our own, as if they had been implanted into us from outside. We feel as if the body of light had bored into us, as if a kind of musical wave, inaudible on earth, had bored into us through the ear. On the other hand, we do not experience the warmth ether as though bored into us, but rather as permeating us. In place of the taste for, excuse me, in place of the sense for taste, which has been eliminated, we begin to feel the activity of the chemical ether working in us, and so on. At this point, compared to what is called a normal condition, we feel that the etheric body is transformed, as if something had penetrated it from outside. In other words, we now gradually come to perceive the etheric body more directly. The most striking transformation that occurs in the etheric body during esoteric development is when the power of memory gradually begins to decline. For many people this is most unwelcome, and it is not recognized as a positive transformation, although it clearly is so. Through esoteric development ordinary memory must always diminish. Memory initially becomes weaker and anyone who wishes to avoid this should not begin esoteric development. It is especially noticeable that the memory described as mechanical memory, the memory that is strongest in childhood and youth and that is generally implied when we speak of memory, ceases to be active and vigorous. Many esotericists have reason to complain of a decline in memory, and such decline becomes evident long before we are inwardly aware of the delicate truth just discussed. However, just as the physical body, despite its greater mobility, cannot suffer harm through the correct anthroposophical training, neither will our memory suffer any serious or lasting injury. We must simply try to follow the right course. Let's turn now to our physical organization. We said that our body becomes outwardly more flexible and our organs become inwardly more independent of one another and thus more difficult to mutually integrate than before. 
We must therefore make ourselves strong inwardly by practicing the six exercises described in the second part of my Outline of Esoteric Science. Footnote. Rudolf Steiner describes six qualities that should be developed. Control of the thought world. Control of actions. Endurance. Impartiality. Trust in the surrounding world. And inner equilibrium. This is also uh, in the book The Stages of Higher Knowledge from the Athroposophic Press. In an outline of esoteric science, he outlines the methods for accomplishing these qualities and their effects in chapter 5. End of footnote. When we practice these in the manner prescribed, we will find that the inner strength necessary to keep the more mobile physical body under control grows and is sufficient to compensate for physical energy lost through esoteric development. We must also follow the right course in relation to memory. We lose the memory that serves the purposes of external life. But it will not harm us if we are careful to develop greater, deeper interest in all of life's concerns and participate more readily and more fully in life than has been our habit. We must begin to develop a sympathetic interest in the things that are important to us. We previously developed a more mechanical memory, and this sometimes proves very reliable when we want to remember something that we do not particularly like. But this mechanical memory ceases eventually. When we practice anthroposophical or esoteric development, we notice that we easily forget things, things for which we have no feeling, no love or sympathy, no affinity of soul are soon forgotten. On the other hand, things for which we have affinity are retained even better, and for this reason we must try to develop such soul affinity systematically. One may experience the following. Let's say, for example, that during our youth, before, coming, before becoming interested in anthroposophy, we read a novel that we could not forget, always being able to tell the story. Later, having studied anthroposophy, we read another novel and its content is suddenly gone. We cannot recall the story. Let's say, however, that we pick up a book that we want to read or one recommended by someone we respect. When we read it through once and immediately try to repeat it mentally, we find that not only can we repeat it, but that we can even repeat it backward from end to the beginning. We may then take the trouble to refer again to certain details and become absorbed in them. And we may take a piece of paper and jot down a few thoughts on the subject and then ask ourselves, quote, what is the viewpoint that especially interests me in this subject? Close quote. <clears throat> if we do this, we will find that we are able to develop a different kind of memory. It is not the same kind of memory. And when we use it, we are clearly aware of the difference. When we use mechanical memory, things arise in our soul as memories. But if, as anthroposophists, we systematically cultivate memory, as I have just described, then the things we have experienced in this way appear stationary in time. We learn to look back into time, as it were. It really begins to seem as though looking back at the things we are recalling Let me read that again. It really begins to seem as though looking back on the, at the things we are recalling. 
Indeed, we notice that things progressively assume a pictorial form and memory becomes increasingly imaginative. If we have done what I just described, with a book, for example, then when it is necessary to recall the matter, we merely need to touch on something connected with it in some way and we shall see that moment when we were busy reading the book. We see ourselves reading it. It is not the memory that is revived, but the whole picture that arises in consciousness. Then we can perceive that whereas before we only read the book, now the content actually appears, seen as though at a distance in time. Memory becomes a seeing or a perception of pictures at a distance in time. This is merely the beginning, a very elementary beginning, of gradually learning to read the Akashic Record. Footnote, Rudolf Steiner elsewhere describes the Akashic Record as the, quote, spiritual panorama in which all past world processes have been recorded. These imperishable impressions of all that is spiritual may be called the Akashic Record, thus designating as the Akashic essence the spiritually permanent element in universal occurrences, in contradistinction to the transient forms of these occurrences. That's from an outline of esoteric science. Quote again, One of the finest, most highly attenuated substances within reach of human faculties is called akasha. The manifestations of beings and of phenomena in the akasha are the most delicate and ethereal of any that are accessible to human beings. What one acquires in the way of occult knowledge lives not only in the soul, but is inscribed into the akasha substance and is significant for the whole of world evolution. Uh, close quote, that's from title Occult Science and Occult Development. <coughs> End of footnote. The capacity for learning to read within the flow of receding time takes the place of memory. Those who have accomplished a certain amount of esoteric development may at times lose their memory almost completely. This is not harmful, however, since they have the capacity to view things flowing backward from a particular point in time. Insofar as they themselves were connected with these matters, they see things with particular clarity. What I am now saying would be ridiculed by those who are not anthroposophists and who cannot understand the esotericists' assurances that they no longer have any memory, that they have lost their memories. Anthroposophists, nevertheless, know perfectly well what has happened, because they can see and, in quotes, read it, it in the flow of receding time. And observers may reply, quote, but you have an excellent memory, close quote, having no idea of the transformation that has occurred, which in fact arises from a transformation in the etheric body. <laughs> Clearly, such a transformation of the memory is related to something else, that to a certain extent a new form of judgment or discernment emerges within our being. We cannot acquire this capacity to glance into to the, in quotes, backward-flowing stream of time without simultaneously taking a stand or establishing a position concerning what we have experienced in that stream. At a later point in time, therefore, when we look back at something we have done, and see ourselves amid that very situation, it becomes obvious that we must judge whether we acted wisely or foolishly. 
This ability to assess ourselves is an experience at once separate from and yet deeply connected to such backward-glancing vision. And we certainly cannot do anything but define a position in relation to our own past. As a result, we will reproach ourselves about certain things and be delighted about our success in others. In other words, we cannot avoid judging what passes before our view, and thus we actually become stricter in our judgment of how we have spent our lives. We sense the etheric body stirring within us, the etheric body that draws into itself our whole past from the life review that occurs after death. We experience this etheric body as an enclosure within ourselves, something living within us that determines our human worth. Indeed, the transformation within the etheric body is such that we often feel the need to survey our lives retrospectively, to review certain actions in order to determine very naturally our human worth. Whereas one normally lives unaware of the etheric body, we perceive it now in the retrospective survey of our own life. As we go through esoteric development, our own life gradually becomes an object of concern, and we must face the fact that esoteric life gives us food for thought, that we must take a closer look at our merits and our shortcomings, errors and imperfections. In our practice, however, something even deeper becomes perceptible, something related to the etheric body, which could also be perceived before, but not as decisively. This deeper fact is the temperament. In the serious occult student, a greater sensitivity to one's temperament is related to the transformation of the etheric body. Let's take a particular case that clearly illustrates this. Consider a person of melancholic temperament. Melancholics, who have not developed esoterically or studied anthroposophy, who go through life with a chip on their shoulder and are easily moved to derogatory criticism, reacting to things in a way that arouses sympathy and antipathy more strongly than would a person with a phlegmatic temperament. Such melancholics, with all their characteristics, from the extremes of contrariness, moroseness, rejection of the whole world, contempt and hatred on the one hand, to great mellowness and sensitivity toward the impressions of the world, on the other hand, there are many shades between these two extremes. When such melancholics take up esoteric development, their temperament becomes essentially the instrument through which they can experience the etheric body. Melancholics become susceptible to the complex of forces that provoke melancholy, which are clearly discernible to them. But whereas, before, they merely directed their dissatisfaction against the external impressions of the world, now they begin to turn their dissatisfaction against themselves. Self-knowledge must be practiced very carefully in esoteric development, and melancholics should be advised to practice in a way that allows them to accept this transformation with calm and composure. Before taking up esoteric development, melancholics often found the world abhorrent, but afterward they begin to turn this abhorrence inward toward self-criticism, so people see that all is not well with them. We can assess such things correctly only when we correctly view so-called temperament. 
A melancholic is melancholic only because the melancholic temperament predominates in that person. Fundamentally, everyone has all four temperaments within the soul. Thus, under certain circumstances, a melancholic is also phlegmatic, in other situations sanguine, and in yet others choleric. In the melancholic person, the melancholic temperament merely dominates the other temperaments. And a phlegmatic person does not possess only a phlegmatic temperament, but the phlegmatic temperament is more pronounced, while the other temperaments remain in the background in the soul. This is how it is with the other temperaments. The transformation that occurs in the etheric body of those who are very melancholic leads them to turn their melancholy inward against themselves. And this is equally true of the modifications and new responses that appear in relation to the other temperaments. Through a wise practice of self-knowledge, however, it is possible through esoteric development to repair the damage done by the predominant temperament. One becomes certain that this damage can be mended through alterations effected by the other temperaments. Thus, because of these changes, a balance is established among the temperaments. One must simply recognize how these transformations arise in relation to the other temperaments. Let's suppose that a phlegmatic person becomes a student of esotericism. This would be no easy matter. But let us suppose that such a person is interested in becoming a true esotericist. This is not impossible, because sometimes when phlegmatics receive powerful impressions, they are powerless against certain impressions, so that the phlegmatic temperament, when not too deeply infected with materialism, is not necessarily a bad preparation for esoteric development. However, it must appear in a noble form, rather than the more exaggerated form we are most familiar with in the phlegmatic temperament. When the phlegmatic cultivates esotericism, the phlegmatic temperament is transformed in an unusual way. Such a person begins to have a strong inclination toward very careful self-observation, and of all the temperaments, self-observation is least painful for the phlegmatic. That is why the phlegmatic temperament is not a bad preparation for an esoteric development since it is well suited to calm self-observation. What phlegmatics perceive within themselves does not upset them the way it would the melancholics. Self-observation in phlegmatics, as a rule, penetrates more deeply than in melancholics, who are inhibited by bouts of self-directed anger. The phlegmatic soul undergoing esoteric training is thus the best material for real anthroposophical development. As I have said, every human being is endowed with the four temperaments. In a melancholic person, the melancholic temperament predominates, but the phlegmatic temperament is present as well. There are always certain things toward which the melancholic acts as a phlegmatic. Once a melancholic becomes an esotericist and can be guided in some way, the inclination to be self-critical or self-reproachful can be addressed. We must endeavor to direct the melancholic's attention toward things that activate the phlegmatic aspect. The melancholic's interest must be awakened to things that were of no interest before. If we can do this, then the damage caused by the melancholy will be neutralized. 
The person of sanguine temperament has a distinct profile as an esotericist, since the main characteristic of sanguinity is an affinity to hasten from one experience to another, a distaste for staying with a single experience. The change in the sanguine's etheric body brings about an unusual transformation. The moment such people become interested, or whenever others seek to interest them in esotericism, they become phlegmatic or indifferent toward their own inner being, so that generally the sanguine type, as far as temperament goes, is the least promising material for esoteric development. Sanguines must develop the capacity for self-observation when taking up esotericism or anthroposophy, and they frequently do, because they are interested in all sorts of things, including anthroposophy and esotericism, though perhaps not very seriously, nor for very long. But they accept all of this with great indifference. They do not care for inner self-observation. They are actually interested in various things, but the process is not deep. They discover all sorts of interesting characteristics within themselves, but they are immediately satisfied with having discovered them. They like to speak of these characteristics, but the whole matter is soon forgotten, including what was observed inwardly. Thus, those who have only a temporary interest in esotericism and soon abandon it again are primarily those of a sanguine nature. The situation is again different for those with a choleric temperament. It is virtually impossible, or rarely possible, for a choleric to become an esotericist. It is the hallmark of the choleric type, or someone in whom the choleric temperament predominates, to automatically reject all esotericism. They want to have nothing to do with it. Nonetheless, it may happen that karmic connections bring precisely such people to esotericism, in which case it is difficult for them to modify their etheric body, since the choleric's etheric body is especially dense and difficult to influence. In the melancholic, for example, the etheric body acts like a rubber ball. Please forgive this trivial comparison, but it will illustrate my point that has deflated. When one presses it, the depression remains for a while. In cholerics, on the other hand, the etheric body is like a fully inflated ball. If one tries to press on it, the depression does not remain and it returns to its former state. Characteristically, therefore, the etheric body of the choleric is tough and unimpressionable. Cholerics thus have great difficulty in modifying their etheric body, and cannot readily effect self-transformation. Precisely because esoteric development seeks to transform individuals, cholerics immediately recoil from it. They cannot take hold of it. But when cholerics are faced with the vicissitudes of life, or whenever their choleric nature carries a nuance of melancholy, with the help of this nuance of melancholy they can develop the choleric element in their human organism and struggle powerfully against the resistance of their etheric body. And when they do succeed in evoking transformations in the etheric body, very special quality is developed. Through esoteric development they gain a greater capacity than others for an objective and profound presentation of external facts in their causal and historical relationships. Those who can appreciate good historical research, the kind that really allows the facts to speak for themselves, 
and this kind of historical writing is not usually done by esotericists, will nevertheless find here the beginning, though unconscious and instinctive, of what an esotericist with a choleric temperament might accomplish as a historian, narrator, or descriptive writer. Tacitus, for example, was at the beginning of such an instinctive esoteric development, hence his wonderful incomparable descriptive power. Footnote. Cornelius Tacitus, A.D. 56 to 120, Roman orator, pol- politician, and military tribune. His Historia covered the time of the Roman emperors Calba, 3 B.C. to A.D. 69, through Domitian, A.D. 51 to 96. End of footnote. An esotericist who reads Tacitus knows that this unique history springs from a very particular elaboration of a choleric temperament in the etheric body. This is manifested clearly in writers who have developed esoterically. Though not generally acknowledged, this applies equally to Homer. Footnote. Homer, around 900 to 800 BC, great Greek poet and presumed singular author of the Iliad and the Odyssey, epic poems about the Trojan War and the adventures of Odysseus, or Ulysses, and a footnote. His outstanding pictorial and descriptive power is due to the choleric temperament active in his etheric body. Within this domain many other factors could be cited that would prove or at least substantiate externally that the choleric who develops esoterically is especially well suited to portray the world in its reality and in its causal relationships. Thanks to esoteric development, the choleric's descriptions, even in their external form, bear the stamp of truth. Today, we have seen that human life is expressed primarily through the transformations in the etheric body. Indeed, this aspect of life becomes more perceptible than an individual's original form within the current incarnation. The temperaments come to be more strongly perceived over the course of esoteric development, and a conscious consideration of the temperaments is especially important for the attainment of true self-knowledge. Tomorrow we shall speak further concerning what I have discussed today. We shall try to clarify these things by means of a diagram of the etheric body, illustrating the changes in the etheric body that result from esoteric or anthroposophical development. The end of Lecture 3